All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Uh, it's actually really good to see all of you guys. I've been gone for the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, we did kind of a dream tour that we had dreamed of doing for about a decade or so, where we went throughout the entirety of the UK, uh, as well as Ireland. Let me move this. I saw this tambourine behind me. I was like, I'm going to kick this at a point where I'm trying to make a significant point, and nobody will pay attention whatsoever. Okay, I feel better now. And uh, it's good to be back. It's really great to be home and uh, be with you guys. I just want to say maybe a couple things on the, on the tail end of uh, that, that trip. Uh, the first, I just really wanted to say thank you. Um, and the thank you really stems from the fact that, like, I love our church culture where I, as one of our pastors, can take a trip and a vacation, and people are really encouraging of that. Some of you grew up in churches where the pastor is sort of supposed to be this, like, perfect Superman who never gets tired and never grows weak, uh, which is why your church had a new pastor every 12 months, because he, like, died underneath the weight of that pressure, and uh, that's not really the environment that we have here, and so I just, I just, like, my family really appreciates, like, us being able to take a break and do things like this, and people being really supportive and encouraging uh, of that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to give was not just a thank you, but also a warning. Um, I know, like, people come back from their vacations, they want to tell you all about it, and they want to show photos, and, you know, like, if you're on the other end of that, you're kind of polite about it, you're like, yeah, I'd love to hear, like, I would love to see photos, but in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, man, I don't need, like, visuals of you having the time of your life while I was stuck here working, right? Like, like, like oh, yeah, I would love to sit through your slideshow. Uh, I feel that. I totally get that. Um, but my warning is I'm still going to talk a lot about my trip because, like, we had a really great time. And uh, I was thinking about you guys the entire time. And uh, I'm even going to start this morning with a picture. So I'm sorry. I'm a hypocrite. But it's just where I have to go. So um, anyways, we're in London a couple of weeks ago, and we're in the British Museum. The British Museum is amazing. You're walking through it. If you're a history nerd like me, you're like, oh my gosh, like there's the Rosetta Stone, and there's the remains of the Parthenon. And some of you are like, oh, there's a giant nerd, like as you're looking at me, uh, as you hear me talking about this. But it's really cool. You have to trust me about this. And uh, all of a sudden, I came across uh, the palace walls uh, of King Sargon II. And I took a picture of it right here. Uh, you can't even really do it justice whatsoever. It's kind of interesting. King Sargon II, he ruled in the Middle East around 700 BC or so, and he was really a ruler without parallel or without equal. He's even mentioned in the Old Testament book of Isaiah because of his prominence and his leadership in that region of the world uh, during that period of time. And really, like, he gained such prowess and prominence that he gained a reputation of being more than a man and being more like a god. He was something more than a man. And really, this, again, because of the lighting, uh, you can see how artistic I am. I did a fantastic job of this. Um, you know, you, you look at this, and, like, what you're seeing is sort of this artistic portrayal of this anticipation. Keep in mind, these are his palace walls, so this is, like, the walls of his house as you're going in to see him. Really, the size doesn't do it justice. They're probably about the size of this wall right here, so unbelievably huge... His face is presented there. That's King Sargon II. His beard game is super strong. I really admire that. And then he's got like kind of the body of a horse, lion type of thing. He's got wings. All of this is sort of a betrayal so that if you were going to see this guy, you see his house walls and you're like, okay, I'm coming to the presence of somebody more than a man. I'm coming to something like somebody who's sort of supernatural, somebody who's more like a god. Now, Here's what's interesting. I don't know how many of you know ancient uh, Middle Eastern history or not, uh, but this crazy thing happened at the end of King Sargon II's life. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows what it is. It's the craziest, craziest thing. He, uh, he died. He died. He like, went into this battle against the Assyrians, and he got stabbed in the stomach. And this man who like, had all these tributes, like he's more than a man, he, he's a god, uh, he died just because he got like, boop, like, Sword right to the stomach. I mean, sure, it was a lot more dramatic than that, right? But it was like, that's all it took. All it took, and, and, and he, he died. Now, it was interesting. 
I was kind of staring at these walls and kind of knew the entire story. And uh, I, I was thinking to myself, like, this is, in many ways, all of our stories. Now, uh, with that, I'm not saying, like, all of you, when you were remodeling your houses recently, you, like, put tributes to your prowess with your face on the wall of your house. That would be very weird. Um, that would not help the resale value of your house. That's like a very particular remodel, right? Um, so don't, don't do that. Don't do that whatsoever. But we've all kind of gone through this process in our lives where we start with, in many ways, the presupposition, I'm something more than a man. I'm something more than a woman. I control the world. And, and we wouldn't sort of put it that way, but it's just sort of the, the, the sayings that we drop. We say things like, um, I'm the master master of my destiny. I control my fate. I'm in control of my own happiness. Or we look at the people that we love. We see this portrayed in movies all the time where we look at our children and we're like, I'll never let anybody bring any harm to you whatsoever. And like those things sound good, but like in reality, it's like, do we really have the power to control this whatsoever? But we don't really, we don't really deal with that whatsoever. And we kind of function underneath this delusion of grandeur of like, I'm something more than a man. I'm something more than a woman. I am in control of the world around me. And then the craziest thing happens. Like all of a sudden you run smack dab into the realities of your own finiteness. And life doesn't go the way you want it to go. And it's not because you did something wrong or stupid. Like for many of you in this room, like there's a job you've dreamt of and you don't have that job and it's not because you're lazy. There's many of you who want to be married and you're not married. There's many of you who want to have children and you're not able to have children. There's many of you who just look at your life and it's like, it's not the way I want it to be. Like, I'm not as in control as I thought I was. It might even be like, you know what the universal example of this is just getting sick around this time of year. Like, this is the perfect kind of time. I'm not even talking like dramatic sick, right? We're not talking like cancer sick. We're just talking like getting the flu. You know, and we kind of think like, I'm in control of my own happiness and my own destiny. And all of a sudden you get in a conversation with somebody and they're like, I just got back from having the stomach bug. And you're like, oh, crap, like, when did I interact with you for the last two weeks? Okay, what do I do to prevent getting sick? Okay, I'm going to do all these, like, immune boosters, and I got the essential oils going. I'm, like, rubbing those things all over me, and I'm not going to get sick whatsoever. I've willed myself not to get sick. I'm in control of not getting sick. And then, like, all of a sudden, it's 3.15 in the morning, and you wake up because your stomach hurts, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm sick. Like, this is absolutely, absolutely terrible. And so this is, like... This is our story, right? We sort of start with the delusion of like, I'm in control of everything. I control my fate. I control my destiny. And then you just kind of run smack up a dab into something that sort of pings us. It's sort of just a reminder of our our proper place in the universe. Now, the question with all of this that I want us to ask collectively is like, what do we do with that reality? Like, how do we sort of navigate that reality and, and handle it in a really healthy way? I mean, I think for some of us, um, we kind of run into that reality and we just ignore it, right? We just we find things that we can control, and, and we've all been exposed to people like this who are kind of super controlling people, really si- significant and little stuff. I think that's kind of a, a way of sort of maintaining this delusion that I'm in control of everything. It might mean that we sort of despair, right? We kind of go in this cycle of like climbing a staircase of anxiety and being stressed out because we can't control the future, and then we get depressed because things don't go the way we want it to be. But, but we don't want that, right? We don't want cycles of, of anxiety and depression. We don't want cycles of being self-controlling and annoying whatsoever. So like, what do we do? Like, how do we respond to this in a really healthy way, this reality that, that we don't really control as much, and life doesn't look exactly the way that we want it to go. And, and here's sort of my answer to this. Is Psalm 22, when properly understood through the lens of Christmas, is actually the answer to that question, okay? And that's what we're going to see, is that Psalm 22, you're like, how in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Um, you know, whereas Psalm 22, interpreted properly through the lens of Christmas, really is an answer to this 
question. So let's go ahead and dive uh, into it again. It's really good to be back with you guys. I love you very, very much. Um, so uh, here, here's what we're going to do. Psalm 22 kind of points us to three different things that we do as we sort of wrestle with life not looking the way that we want it to look like. And the first is this. It pushes us to rejoice over Jesus' identification with our struggle. It pushes us to rejoice over Jesus' identification with our struggles. Psalm 22 is probably one of the most well-known psalms because the first line of it is actually what Jesus cries out uh, when he is crucified. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the psalm continues to say, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Let's just sort of pause there. I remember the very first time, like, I didn't really grow up going to church very much, so the first time I was really reading the Bible, I was about 18, 19 years old. I remember reading this psalm and then, like, finding out that Jesus had said this before uh, he would die. I remember thinking to myself, like, this is not very comforting. Like, the founder and the perfecter of my faith in God is openly doubting God as he's sort of breathing his final breaths. So, like, why is this good news? Well, well, here's what's happening in this psalm. What's unfolding is the anticipation of not just what Jesus will carry out on the cross, but also even at the cradle. So here's the thing is, like, for us, if we're properly understanding Christmas, you can never separate the cradle from the cross. And what's happening in this moment is that through the perspective of Christmas, we're seeing why this is good news is that Jesus is willing to identify with us even at the moment of his birth of suffering and pain and the hardship that we, all fall, that we all feel. What's happening is a proclamation, even at Jesus' birth, that he is willing to identify with us, even to a point that he'll go so far as to know what it's like to openly doubt whether or not God is for him or against him. Now, we'll kind of elaborate on this. There's a lot in there. So let me, let me kind of help you understand maybe like the practical of what's going on here, and then like let's kind of apply this to ourselves and talk about why this is really good news. Like, What's being proclaimed in this moment is the anticipation of a man who's going to come, a savior who's going to come, who's going to be able to do more than sympathize, but also empathize with us. A lot of times in our culture, we use the words sympathy and empathy, sort of like they're synonyms, but they're not. They actually mean two very different things. So, so to be sympathetic is like, let's say you had, uh, I don't know, let's, what's, a, what's something that's like really hard? Let's, let's say you had a messy breakup recently with like a crazy dude, okay? Uh, or crazy girl, or pro- Apply it to yourself individually, okay? Uh, so sympathy would be like somebody being like, man, I'm sorry, but like they themselves are like, have never experienced a crazy breakup whatsoever, and they have like the perfect romance, and you're like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Thanks so much for feeling sorry for me. Thank you very much. Empathy is somebody being able to sit down with you and being like, I've been through the exact same thing, and here's how I process it as well. Sympathy is sort of like, I feel sorry for you. Empathy is being like, I know exactly what it is that you're going through, and I have experienced it myself. And what's being proclaimed is an anticipation of a Messiah who will be born and he will grow up and he will die and his life will be characterized by such that he will be able to do more than just sympathize and be like, oh, I'm sorry that life is so hard for you, but to empathize, to feel what it is that we feel, to be pushed to a point in our lives where life is so hard. Let me ask you, has life ever been so hard for you that you've either verbally or internally thought to yourself, like, God, are you there? And if you are there, have you forsaken me? Like, have you ever felt pain of that degree? And here's the really amazing news. is like, God has felt that pain. 
Like God knows what it's like to be in the flesh. It's the craziest thing. Like sort of philosophically to wrap your mind around it is hard, but it's like our hearts just sort of receive this as good news is that is the character and the nature of the God who will come and save us. He's able to do more than merely sympathize, but he's able to empathize. Now the question is like, how exactly does that process and go on in our lives? Like how does that make sense in light of Christmas? Well, it's really interesting because Christmas time really is the time where we sort of receive and believe that truth as good news. I know for a lot of us, Christmas time is sort of the season that sort of maintains and feeds our delusions of grandeur, right? There's like 15 movies that come out after Thanksgiving about like, if you just want it hard enough, you'll have it. And you're like, that's not the story I'm living right now. And it's like, well, Christmas time, like biblical, biblically interpreted Christmas time is the season for us to sort of process the, the pain of that degree that we would even openly question God. Uh, I feel like a man who's a great example of this, we talked about him a lot last Christmas as a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a theologian in Germany uh, around the time of the Second World War. Uh, he actually stood up to the Nazis as they were gaining power and was imprisoned and ultimately executed for this. And it's really interesting, we have his letters uh, a lot of them are in a book called God in the Manger, and many of them are him in prison awaiting his execution, talking about how Christmas is the season by which he can best interpret and make sense of the suffering that he is enduring. And it's interesting. Here's what he writes. I'll give you a couple of quotes from him. He says this. He says, from the Christian point of view, there is no special problem about Christmas in a prison cell. This is a letter he's writing to his parents, by the way. For many people in this building, it will probably be a more sincere and genuine occasion than in places where nothing but the name, he's talking about the name of Christmas, is kept. The misery, suffering, poverty, loneliness, helplessness, and guilt mean something quite different in the eyes of God from what they mean in the judgment of man, that God will approach where men turn away, that Christ was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the end. These are the things that a prisoner can understand better than other people, for in him they are really glad tidings. And he later, he's writing to his fiance. He was hoping to get married, but he would die and be executed before this could happen. He says, God is in the manger. Wealth and poverty, light and darkness, succor, this sort of help or an aid in abandonment. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. So what Bonhoeffer is proclaiming is that it's in the story of Christmas. And here's the, here's the problem, right? Like the problem in Christmas is a sort of so overly romanticized, I don't know, you look at a story of Jesus being born in a barn, and for the vast majority of us, we're kind of like, well, isn't that sweet? Right? We're like, well, isn't that cute that like there was no room for him at the end? Like that must have been like a thing that Mary and Joseph laughed about later. And, you know, like they went to the barn and like he was born and there's like this sweet little bed of hay and, you know, there's this perfect trough and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. I don't know what they are, but they sound very comfortable. Like I would love to have some of those for myself. And, you know, surrounded by animals like the pigs and the horses must have just been smiling and being quiet. And like, that's just what they do, right? That's what they do. And it's like, are you crazy? Like, have you thought critically about the way all of this unfolds? Can you imagine a birth story, right? Like, a lot of you in this room have given birth, or you have somebody close to you who's given birth, and you have your birth plan, right? You have your birth plan, and kind of no matter what your preference is about your birth plan, like, the one thing that all of you ladies have in common is, like, it better go down that way. Or it's going to severely stress me out if it doesn't go down that way. And can you imagine your birth plan being like, okay, we're on the road and we're trying to find a hotel and there's no room for us in the hotel. They're like, we got a barn out back. And you're like, okay, great, no problem. I was hoping to give birth amongst like animal excrement. That sounds absolutely fantastic to me. And then you go and you give birth in that environment. 
Like, we as a staff were even just kind of talking about this. It's like, can you imagine a birth story that is worse than this birth story if the child lives? I just can't even, like, imagine what it would be like to give birth to a child in an environment where you're in a cold barn surrounded by animals screaming all around you, going crazy, because they're not used to, like, major surgeries unfolding in their, like, place of rest, Right? Like, you've got to get a proper perspective about this because in this moment, what's happened, when you see sort of the nastiness of what's unfolding and the way that the Son of God is born, and and get this too, it's not an accident. A lot of times it's portrayed in culture as like this sort of accidental, like God almost didn't know how to navigate the Obamacare healthcare system, and it's like, I'm not really sure, sorry Jesus, no healthcare, you're going to have to do this thing at home. It's like, it's not that, right? It's like underneath the sovereign and guiding hand of God. It's on purpose that he is born in this way. Why? Because even from his infancy, even from his cradle, he is proclaiming that he is the one who will go to the cross and fully identify with the lowest of the low and the outsider and the worst of the worst and the broken and the ones that we look at and the people we look at in terms of ourselves and say, like, I'm not sure if life can get much worse for you. I'm not sure if life can get much worse for me, and it's so bad right now. I'm asking myself internally and externally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Christmas is that season that proclaims to us that Jesus will fully identify with that pain, and he will come with us to know exactly what it's like so he can not merely sympathize and say, I'm sorry, here's a bunch of rules to make things better, but to empathize and say, I know exactly what you're going through. It's beautiful. It's like such good news. Now, that's like kind of the overarching guiding framework that we interpret them. Like, life is not going the way that I want it to go. But then it's kind of, okay, well, like, help me figure out, like, what is it that I'm practically supposed to do? And I love the way this psalm unfolds because then there's sort of some practical how-tos of, like, okay, I get that. I believe that. I trust that. Like, what is it that I'm supposed to do? And there's kind of two different action steps of the way that we sort of make sense of the pain that we're experiencing. The first is this. uh, We engage in the dance of both honesty and hope. We engage in the dance of both honesty and hope because what you see unfold in this moment is sort of like after this opening of this sort of doubting of God is the psalmist, David, it's sort of Jesus' great, 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 give or take a few greats, grandfather, him trying to process a really difficult aspect of his life. And he's in this way sort of dancing. And dancing is sort of like too, uh, it's, it's not a violent enough image. Like fighting, playing tug of war. I'm not sure what the best way is to describe it. Like he's fighting to be both honest about what it is, is that he's feeling, but also hopeful about what the future holds. And he's kind of going back and forth in this. And look at how this unfolds. This is why we wanted you guys to read this so you could kind of feel a little bit of this. He says, yet you are holy. L- listen to the hope in this. He's kind of like, why have you forsaken me? But you're holy, and you're enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried, and, you, and were rescued. And you, they trusted, and were not put to shame. So he's like recounting. He's like, I don't see it right now, but I see the past faithfulness of God, and the way you've been faithful to my grandfather and my great-grandfather, and like, that's who you are. And then he's honest again. Like, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
And then all of a sudden, he's like hopeful again. Yet you are the one who took me from the womb. It's like, is he bipolar? What is going on here? You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. Uh, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. And all of a sudden, he's honest again. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. You see this? It's like a dance sort of back and forth. One step forward, one step back. It's like a fight for him to be simultaneously honest about what it is he's going through, as well as hopeful that it won't always be that way. Now think about this. Like, let's just sort of apply this to ourselves. Like maybe as you're kind of wrestling through whatever it is that you're going through, let me kind of help you think about this. What I want to give you is sort of permission, on one hand, to be authentically honest, uh, but on the other hand, permission to be really, really hopeful as well. So let's kind of walk through those together. I think sometimes, I think in the life of churches, um, we're almost afraid to be honest about what it is that we're feeling about God, particularly when things are really, really hard. Some of you grew up in environments where like a tragedy would happen to you, like somebody in your family would die, and the environment that surrounded you was almost like it's not okay for you to be like, I'm sad, or like, what is God up to? It's kind of like, no, here's like why it happened, and here's why it's all better, and here's why you shouldn't think about it whatsoever. And if you've ever sort of endured suffering underneath that sort of pressure, you're probably still trying to recover from that. Like, here's the amazingly good news, is while, like, churches you grew up in might not give you permission for honesty about, like, when you were suffering and struggling, like, the Bible actually does. Isn't that, like, really great news? Like, Psalm 22, like, if somebody said that in church, we'd almost be like, hey, shh, don't, t- don't say that. Don't say, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're not supposed to sing about that. Stop it. Like, Jesus crying down on the cross, like, quiet, Jesus. Like, don't say that. And it's like, oh my gosh, like what great news. I feel like in my own life, like when we have suffered and experienced tremendous hardship, I feel like almost half of the battle towards health is just like giving myself permission to be honest about what it is I'm going through. Like, I'm sad about this. This is hard. This is difficult. But we don't do that. Like, we distract it. We explain it away by, like, shallow religious platitudes. We self-medicate with drink and drugs and skiing and TV. And, like, my gosh, like, if you're going through something really, really hard, and I feel like the Christmas season in particular kind of, like, opens wounds even wider for those of you who struggled really hard, I would just lovingly challenge you to press in and to be honest and to feel your feelings and do the hard work of, like, processing, like, this is what I really feel about what I'm going through and who God is. Like, that's so unbelievably healthy for you. But here's the interesting thing, is it not stop there? Is it not stop there and just sort of, like, wallow in your sadness and be like, oh, well, it's, I'm going to despair. Like you see David in this psalm, he's, he's fighting to believe that which is true. You, you see that he's not content to merely sort of wallow in his suffering and his pain, but to continually come back to the reminder of this is who God is and to be hopeful as a consequence. Like I just want to give some of you the permission to be hopeful. It, it's kind of like, I feel almost weird saying that because I think like around the Christmas season, we're all like, oh, we're all so hopeful. But like, I actually get to know people and talk to people over lunch. And, and like, just most people I meet, like, even the most devout Christians, a lot of times are pretty pessimistic about what the future has to hold. And even like, I'll not just say you, I'll say our, because I'm like this as well. I was processing this week. So like, I feel like for us, a lot of times, like, we have this very warped understanding of who God is, that like, He is there. 
and he's kind of good, but it's like a really inconvenient good. It's kind of like this good that like, he's going to crush me, and like if things are going well, I need to be really nervous, and like, wait, when is the other shoe going to drop, and he's going to like wound me and crush me, but like somehow I'll be thankful for it sometime in the future, and that's who my God is. And it's like, that is not the loving father presented in the scriptures. That's sort of like a cruel taskmaster that you're kind of afraid to make angry. But God has revealed himself at the cradle. He has revealed himself at the cross as not just some cold, distant taskmaster who tells you what to do. He's the one who draws near and fully experiences the pain that we have experienced. And we know how the rest of that story ends. I'll, I'll get to that here in a second. But it's because of that then we, we give ourselves permission to hope to say, like, my marriage doesn't always have to be this way. This issue in my life doesn't necessarily always have to be this way. Life doesn't always have to be this bad. Like, God actually cares about me. He actually loves to give good, give good gifts to me. He actually desires for my thriving and my health and my happiness. And it might be a slightly different definition of my happiness. It might not be, like, I get everything I always wanted whatsoever, but he is going to give me himself, and it's that that my joy is found. And at Christmas is the proclamation. Of that. Like, that's what he's giving. Like, he's giving himself because he's drawing near. Now, second with this, Okay, so we're honest, right? Or, or we kind of do this dance. We're like, okay, so even just practically, if you're like suffering this week, like I would just like take 15 minutes and maybe journal or go on a walk and talk out loud where people think you're talking like on your headphones and you're actually talking to God and just be like, here's why I'm angry. Here's what I'm struggling through. Here's what this really makes me feel. But like, here's who you are. And like, it's a season of like reminding yourself as well. I just think even like a 15-minute conversation like that is like one of the most helpful and healthy things you can do for you, like enduring whatever it is that you're enduring. Now, the, <clears throat> the second sort of practical thing that we see happening in this scripture is, uh, is the psalmist pushing us to interpret our current struggle, our current story, in light of a larger story. Incur- Interpret our current struggle and our current story in light of a larger story. Uh, I'll put it this way. A present struggle is always properly understood when we grasp future realities. A present struggle is always properly understood when we grasp future realities. Now, uh, I don't know if that makes sense yet. And so let me uh, just give you one more story from my trip. Uh, not ever, but just uh, for, for this morning, okay? Um, in London, Megan and I, we went to this thing called Borough Market. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody's been there before, but it's like the ultimate uh, farmer's market of the world. Like London is one of the most global cities, and so people come from all over the world. And they come to this market, and they sort of put their like, best products there uh, that you can purchase and buy. And so we're going through, and we're looking at this bread, and we're looking at all this food and everything like this. And uh, we come across this stand that has jellies and jams and uh, it's like unbelievably decorated, and they're, they're Parisian from Paris. They are Parisian jellies and jams. And Megan's like, we got to get one of these. Now, for me, I'm always sort of the realist, where I was like, man, like I love a good jam. Like I would love to have this, but like I'm trying to think to myself, oh my gosh, this is the beginning of our trip. I'm gonna have to like lug this thing away. Like we were doing a series of flights after this to hop to other parts of the UK and of the continent as well. And I'm thinking to myself, like, man, like I'm gonna bring this on a plane. Like this thing is gonna explode in my suitcase. Like it's gonna ruin everything. Like, like can you imagine this going through an X-ray? Like this thing looks like a bomb, right? It's like a little like liquid gelatin thing. It's like I'm gonna get stopped, flagged. Like it's gonna be terrible but like okay let's do it like 
I'm going to eat this jam, and it is going to be spectacular. So I, I wrap this thing up, pack it in my bag. We fly from London to Dublin. The first thing we do is check the jam, and the jam is okay. And then we fly from Dublin to Glasgow, Scotland, and uh, we check the jam, and it's okay. And then we drive from Glasgow to uh, Liverpool. It's about three, four-hour drive. Like, the jam is okay. We drive from Liverpool to Oxford, and then Oxford to London. And then we do flying back. So we connected in Iceland, so we fly from London to Iceland. I check the jam. Okay, the jam is okay. And then we get home, and and the jam is not okay. Like, it it's opens, and it's gone bad, and uh, here it is. Here it is right here. Uh, this is a, a testimony to the sadness that I will forever feel about this blasted jam. Um, so here it is right here. It looks very fancy and everything like this. Oh, man, I'm, like, super, super upset about this. Now, um, about two days after we're home, you know, we've been gone for a couple of weeks. Uh, Maggie gets home from running some errands, and she says, um, I need to tell you something. Okay. What is it? She's like, it's about the jam. It's like, okay, tell me what, tell me what it is. Like, you can't get any worse than that. And uh, she's like, they sell that jam at Target. <laughs> they really do. So you can get this at Target. Um, yeah. And I was like, I'm not sure what I feel in this moment, right? I'm trying to feel my feelings. Like, on one hand, I'm like deeply relieved because it's like I can finally taste what this jam is supposed to taste like. Um, on the other hand, I'm a little upset because this was portrayed as like exotic Parisian jam. Uh, but like, why do I tell the entirety of that story? Well, it's like, as soon as you understand future realities, like if I told you that at the very front of the story, it totally changes the way you think about that jam in the moment. And what's happening in this psalm is like David is fighting to understand his present struggle in light of future realities. It's like that future reality is so significant, it's so profound, it spills into the present and it helps me properly understand what it is that I'm going through. And so look at how he does this. He starts, look at verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Now this is stunning to us. This should be absolutely, absolutely stunning to us because we don't think this is something that's like literally unfolding to David, but it's more an anticipation of what will happen to his great, 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 give or take a few greats, grandson, Jesus. It's, it's stunning. Commentators and scholars always remark about how stunning this is because it seems like this is something from the New Testament. It's looking like he's just describing exactly the way that Jesus is crucified. The crazy thing is when, when David is writing this, crucifixion doesn't even exist yet. He's like hundreds of years prior to crucifixion being invented as a way for somebody to die. And yet David is here sort of prophetically anticipating that there is one who is coming who will not only suffer in such a way, uh, but he will suffer in this very specific way as well. And then he sort of anticipates like what is going to come from this as well. Like this great moment of pain will give rise to this great moment of joy as well. It's why the psalm ends in this way. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Sounds like something out of the book of Romans or it sounds like the end of the gospels there. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It's like David, here's what he's doing. He's like looking at his present struggle, but he's saying like there's a fixed future reality that God is the one like 
who will suffer and he will die in this way. But at the same time, like it's not the end, it's the beginning. He resurrects, he's victorious, his salvation is proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. He's looking at this future reality that the greatest evil the world has ever seen, like that the sinless son of God, this little baby who will be born in this cradle, will be raised up and he'll be crucified on a cross. That the, the most evil moment in human history will bring about the greatest joy, the salvation of the ends of the earth. And he's letting that fixed future reality spill into his presence so that he can properly interpret his own suffering and struggle and story in light of the larger story. And what we're not saying with this, like as we try to do this as well, is like, okay, well, the, the answer to this then is be like, well, it's not that big of a deal, and oh, it's everything okay, and Jesus ends in the end, and so I'm not. No, like he's already given us permission for us to be honest, but he's given us also the permission to hope and have a fixed, tangible hope. Not just hope because you want to hope, but to have a fixed future reality of who God is and what he's done, that he's suffered and died for me, that he's perfectly identified for me, that he's resurrected from the grave, and he's coming back again one day to make everything new again. And as we wait in the second advent, we wait hopeful, we suffer, we endure, we cry, but hopeful, hopeful that he's going to put the world back together in the way that we long for it to be. I talked to a friend on Friday, I was at a Christmas party, and I ran into a friend I haven't seen there in like a really long time. And uh, he's going through, like, something really, really hard right now. And I just asked him, like, how are you doing? And he's like, man, if I'm honest, not good, but I know it's going to get better. And then he went, <laughs> I was like, okay, like, everybody says that, right? But then he says, it might just be even after I die that it gets better. But I know that it gets better. And that is really good news for me. And that's what you're saying. It's like, it's crazy, this type of fixed hope in the future that spills into this present reality and helps us know and believe and understand and make sense of like, yes, this is suffering, this is struggle, this is hardship, this is pain, but this is not the final chapter in the story. It is merely the middle of it, and God is going to return. He's going to make everything back in the way that it was meant to absolutely be. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, and that's what we celebrate even now. It's like, like as we partake and we, we sing and as we pray, and as we even do communion, we do so in remembrance of what took place like, as the culmination of the first advent, that Jesus' body would be broken, his blood would be poured out. But it's also an anticipation of the second advent, that Jesus is going to come, and he's going to put the world back together in the way that it was meant to be, and death will be no more, and there will be no more tears whatsoever, and one day we will share bread and wine with King Jesus, who made everything right. That's what we do when we celebrate communion. It's not just some sort of empty empty tradition. And so, as we turn our minds and our hearts to Christmas, like, let's do so with honest hearts, but hopeful hearts, because of who he is and the way he's identified with us in his birth. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for what you've done, and we pray that we would interpret the realities of Christmas correctly. There is so much cultural conversation about um, should we be hopeful? Like, what does it mean to be hopeful? What does that look like? And uh, I pray that the scriptures, that even like an unlikely scripture like Psalm 22 would help us properly make sense of what we should be feeling during this really significant season. Please be with those who are broken. Please be with those who are struggling and suffering. Please be with those uh, who see Christmas as a particularly like really difficult season for them. And um, let them be honest, but let them hope. And let us be a community of men and women who point to the perfect empathizer, the perfect counselor, the perfect identifier, King Jesus. And so as we sing, as we pray, as we celebrate communion, let us do that with these truths in mind. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.